Hey guys, welcome to the Bitcoin Fortress podcast, helping you increase your financial freedom. This is episode 56, recorded here on March 19th, 2023. This podcast is for entertainment only and is not investing advice, so as always, please do your own homework. Well, we got a lot to go over this week. Um, so, uh, we will jump right in. First with the market update, stocks and bonds yields fell Friday, capping a tumultuous week as concerns rose that turmoil rocking the banking sector will tip the global economy into a recession. Investors pulled back from positions in First Republic and other regional bank shares, making a turn from Thursday's relief bounce that followed a commitment from a group of banks for $30 billion in deposits as a sign of confidence in the banking system. Despite the down session, the S&P 500 settled 1.4% higher on the week, and the NASDAQ composite jumped 4.4% as investors bet on tech names ahead of next week's Federal Reserve policy meeting. Friday's slide pulled the Dow Jones Industrial Average slightly negative for the week down 0.15%. Looking ahead to next week, the headliner event of the week will be a crucial two-day meeting of the Federal Reserve's policymaking committee, with some investors on a razor's edge over the potential for an unexpectedly hawkish tilt. At the time of publication, futures trading implies a 74.5% probability of a 25 basis point hike by the Fed and a 25.5% chance of no hike at all. The odds for a 50 basis point hike are now effectively off the table after being a betting favorite just a few weeks ago. Opinion is divided on the tactics the central bank should take given the recent events. Bank of America forecasts the target range will be raised appropriately by the Fed by 25 points to 4.75 to 5% with the short-term loans offered through the bank term funding program seen as an effective backstop to more banking fallout. However, Moody's analyst Mark Zandi is firm that the Fed should not tighten policy due to higher recession risks. If they raise rates, that qualifies as a mistake, and I would call it an egregious mistake. Outside of the Fed drama, economic reports do Due to be pouring in include the existing home sales update on March 20th, the new home sales numbers as on March 23rd, and the durable goods orders report on March 24th. The corporate calendar features one of the biggest events of the year for NVIDIA. The Chipmakers GTC conference will be closely watched across the tech sector with some discussion on AI chips anticipated. Nike will also report earnings next week with investors looking to get a beat on how demand and inventory trends are holding up for the Dow 30 stock. All right, so we'll get into the Bitcoin news. And as you can imagine, a lot of it uh, revolves around the banking crisis. And uh, of course, you know, all this ties back to Bitcoin being, um, you know, a port in the storm as it relates to uh, some of the things that are happening out there. And, We'll get right to it. So the first article here is from Cointelegraph, uh, and this was just updated today. 
uh, and it's entitled Credit Suisse Rescue Plan May Include Nationalization, Bondholder Losses. And so for those of you who don't know, Credit Suisse is a big Swiss bank. It's been kind of on the ropes. And uh, last week, I guess it got a bailout for about $50 billion from the Swiss National Bank. And now they're looking to uh, sell it to UBS, which is another too big to fail bank, and uh, thereby effectively nationalizing it. Uh, uh, because in that in, in their agreement, you know, of course, they'll want uh, assurances from the government that the liabilities, which they probably don't even really know all of them, uh, will be uh, backstopped and protected. And so they just get the assets, basically. Uh, a rescue plan for Swiss banking giant Credit Suisse may impose losses on its bondholders and even result in a full or partial nationalization of Credit Suisse Group AG, multiple reports revealed on March 19th. Swiss authorities are considering applying losses to Credit Suisse bondholders as part of the bank's ongoing recovery efforts. Reuters learned from two sources. European regulators are concerned that the move might undermine investor confidence in the Europe's financial sector. Another report from Bloomberg claims that the Swiss government is analyzing a full or partial nationalization of the bank, the only available alternative if the UBS takeover is not completed. Investment bank UBS is Switzerland's largest bank. On March 18th, the Swiss National Bank and Switzerland's financial regulators said Credit Suisse's acquisition by UBS is the only option to prevent a collapse in confidence in Credit Suisse. The nationalization would be an emergency option due to the complexities surrounding the deal and the limited time available. Swiss authorities are working over the weekend on emergency measures to accelerate the deal before Asian markets open, including allowing the deal to proceed without a shareholder vote. UBS is reportedly asking the government to shoulder around $6 billion in legal costs and potential future losses in the event of a takeover. UBS is offering $1 billion for Credit Suisse, a considerable discount under the bank's market value on March 17th of nearly $8 billion. Wow, according to company's market cap. So that is a big discount. Swiss authorities are also concerned about job losses due to the deal. According to reports, Credit Suisse was previously considering laying off 9,000 employees to save its business. Investment company BlackRock denied on March 18th plans or interest in acquiring Credit Suisse. BlackRock is not participating in any plans to acquire all or any part of Credit Suisse and has no interest in doing so, the firm said on Twitter. So, looks like it's either a sale to uh, UBS with uh, for nothing and with guarantees of the liabilities or uh, the government will just take it over, uh, in which case uh, I guess a lot of the employees will get to keep their jobs. Um, but that would certainly be not good. I mean, either way, it's just not good. <clears throat> and um, so the banking crisis here in the US with the regional banks uh, jumped over to the over the Atlantic and now is affecting uh, Europe and there's several other banks obviously in Europe that are in trouble but this is kind of the top of the news at the moment. Uh, moving on here now uh, this is 
also Cointelegraph. This was, I think, updated uh, today. And this article says, <clears throat> U.S. mid-sized banks seek FDIC insurance on, quote, all deposits for two years. The Mid-Sized Bank Coalition of America, or MDCA, has reportedly asked United States federal regulators to extend insurance on all deposits for the next two years. According to a March 18th Bloomberg report, the MVCA Coalition of Mid-Sized U.S. Banks sent a letter to the U.S. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation asserting that extending insurance on all deposits would immediately halt the exodus of deposits from smaller banks. <clears throat> the MVCA also reportedly noted that this action would stabilize the banking industry and significantly decrease the chances of more bank failures. The MBCA proposed that the banks themselves fund the insurance program by raising the deposit insurance assessment on lenders who opt to participate in the increased coverage. John Deaton, the founder of legal news outlet Crypto Law Lawyer, predicted in a March 19th tweet to his 250,000 followers that up to 300 banks could go under if the FDIC fails to provide some guarantee. <clears throat> the report revealed that even if only half of uninsured depositors decided to withdraw, almost 190 banks were at potential risk of impairment to insured depositors with potentially $300 billion of insured depositors at risk. Meanwhile, Representative Tom Emmer, the majority whip of the United States House of Representatives, questioned reports that the FDIC is weaponizing recent instability in the banking sector to purge legal crypto activity from the U.S. in a March 15th letter to FDIC Chair Mark Grunberg. Emmer warned that these actions are deeply inappropriate and could lead to broader financial instability. Furthermore, the U.S. Federal Reserve announced on March 13th that the Vice Chair for Supervision, Michael Barr, is leading a review of the supervision and regulation of Silicon Valley Bank in light of its failure, with the review set for public release on May 1st. So obviously the regional bank issue is not resolved. Um, and I think probably some of this concern had to do with Janet Yellen's testimony that basically said that the only reason why they're backstopping Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank is because they were deemed to be uh, systemically important. And so if you aren't considered systemically important bank, then you don't get the 100% guarantee on all deposits it's still the 250 so that's why the regional banks are asking for that because needless to say depositors are still pulling their money out and sending them to the big banks which are uh, too big to fail um, so it'll be interesting to see uh, what the next move is here there was also some uh, Back and forth on Twitter over the weekend that uh, Warren Buffett uh, was talking to the regional banks and maybe even talking to the government um, about some sort of a backstop. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what gets announced on that, if anything, next week. Uh, but clearly the crisis is just getting started. All right, moving on. Next article here is from Coindesk. This was um, published on March 17th, and it's an opinion piece. I thought it was kind of interesting take. Uh, this crisis will define the future of money. This is by uh, Alex Thorne. 
Ten years ago, a strange new digital currency called Bitcoin caught my attention for the first time as its price surged during the Cyprus banking crisis. Local authorities had infuriated Cypriots by slapping a 10% tax on withdrawals, unwittingly encouraging some to warm to the idea of bankless digital money. Per Omkar Godbull's reporting, I'm not alone in seeing parallels between the past week's events. Again, Bitcoin's price has rallied on speculation that stress among U.S. and European banks will open people's eyes to the leading cryptocurrency's censorship-resistant, intermediary-free qualities. But if this is Bitcoin's Cyprus moment, the context is very different from 2013. With crypto now embedded in public consciousness, negatively mostly, the industry faces its biggest ever test, one that involves an intensified struggle with the financial establishment. With thousands of people next month joining Coindesk's annual consensus conference in Austin, Texas to discuss crypto's challenges and opportunities, the community now has a narrow opportunity to seize the day and define the future of money. Recall that the Bitcoin blockchain was born out of the chaos of the 2008-2009 financial crisis with Satoshi Nakamoto's immortal timestamp on January 3, 2009, inscribing a headline from that day's London Times, Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks, Chancellor being the UK's finance minister. That crisis highlighted how our dependence on banks to run the plumbing of our money and payments leaves the entire economy vulnerable to mismatches in banks' investments and liabilities, which can undermine their ability to honor deposits. And it was showed how the largest banks whose interwoven credit exposures create systemic risk exploited their too-big-to-fail status, the idea that governments would always bail them out to protect the economy to place asymmetric, high-return, risky bets. It showed how Wall Street and other financial centers, in effect, hold our democracies hostage. Now, with the collapse of three high-profile banks, hundreds of regional banks facing worrying outflows, the U.S. Federal Reserve creating a new backstop facility reportedly worth $2 trillion, and Switzerland's central bank bailing out Credit Suisse to the tune of $54 billion, the echoes of that prior crisis are loud. As the Fed and the Federal Deposit Insurance uh, Commission scrambled last weekend to put a funding plan in place, so that the thousands of startups with deposits at Silicon Valley Bank would meet payroll this week, we got a flashback to September 17, 2008. On that day, two days after the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the reserve primary fund used by companies to manage their cash reserves broke the buck. We feared that failures at similar short-term money market funds would lead to widespread chaos in the economy-wide system for paying employees and commercial contractors. It's not only the familiarity that's striking here, it's also the cause and effect. A direct line could be drawn from SVB's failure to the policies introduced in the wake of that prior crisis. In 2009, with the divided U.S. government unable to agree on fiscal solutions to revive growth, the Fed launched <clears throat> what would become a multi-year quantitative easing program, delivering a surfeit of dollars that left Silicon Valley's venture funds flush with money that they poured into startups. Those companies deposited the funds at SVB, which in turn made what must have seemed a conservative investment choice at the time. It plowed the cash into long-term U.S. government bonds and mortgage-backed securities. The problem was that in January 2022, once the Fed had finally acknowledged its easy monetary policies had stoked sustained inflation, it started aggressively hiking rates. This tanked the bond market and lumped mass massive losses on SVB 
which had made the fatal error of not hedging its interest rate risk. Now, <clears throat> as fear spreads to smaller regional banks, depositors have fled en masse into Wall Street's too-big-to-fail institutions, making them even bigger to an unprecedented degree that will position an elite group of bankers as gatekeepers of our economy, a centralizing power that's already showing signs of overreach. Bitcoin's raison d'etre has always been that in removing intermediaries from payments and hard-coding monetary policy into a predictable issuance schedule, it offers an alternative to the centralized model of fiat sovereign currency run by central banks in coordination with private banks, and so mitigates the entrenched vulnerabilities exposed by this past week's events. At first blush, however, the news hasn't been good for Bitcoin and the rest of the crypto community. Silvergate Bank, the first of a trio to collapse, was brought down in part by its heavy exposure to failing crypto firms that encouraged anti-crypto politicians like U.S. Senate Senator Elizabeth Warren to call for tough measures against the industry, helping feed a guilt by association impact on SVB, although that bank's actual exposure to crypto was proportionally quite low. With authorities last weekend also shuttering Signature Bank, another crypto favorite, the government is either intentionally or indirectly using its relationship with those gatekeeping financial institutions to squeeze the industry. Crypto companies that previously banked with one or more of the three shuttered institutions have been rejected repeatedly by bank compliance officers as they desperately try to open alternative accounts. Although the New York Department of Financial Services said Signature's closure had nothing to do with crypto and was instead triggered by a crisis of confidence in its leadership, people are scratching their heads over why a supposedly solvent bank was shut down. Former U.S. Rep. Uh, Barney Frank, now a board member at Signature speculated in a New York Magazine article uh, that the New York financial regulator had made the bank a, quote, poster child to say, stay, say, stay away from crypto. Later, Reuters reported the FDIC is insisting that any prospective buyer will have to give up on Signature's crypto business. The regulator later denied that report. Blacklisting a legal industry in this way is an abuse of power, but if that's what the NYDFS was doing, presumably in coordination with federal agencies, for now there's little crypto leaders can do about it. Meanwhile, stablecoins, which are vital to fiat-to-crypto exchange operations, have been caught up in this. When Circle Financial announced that some of the reserves backing USDC were held at Silicon Valley Bank, the stablecoin briefly lost its one-to-one -one peg to the dollar. That situation has been resolved, but the closure of Signature Bank has meant Circle can no longer use its 24-7 Signet dollar clearing system for redemptions, forcing it to rely solely on the time-bound services of Wall Street behemoth BNY Mellon. Still, as angel investor and myth of money newsletter author Tatiana Kaufman wrote in a CoinDesk op-ed, Bitcoin is made for this moment, if people continue to lose confidence in banks' ability to keep their money safe, the narrative around Bitcoin's self-custody model will only get stronger. Its appeal will be further enhanced if the Fed is forced to reverse course and cut interest rates, which could weaken the dollar. That prospect grew stronger Thursday with news of an unexpected softening in U.S. inflation. I see this all playing out in a complicated, multifaceted clash of power, one that ultimately compels governments to accelerate the implementation of new regulatory framework for the coming era of digital money. On one level, the bank failures underscore the need to divorce payments from crisis-prone 
fractional reserve banking, precisely the solution for which fully reserved stablecoins are designed. Given the USDC stablecoin's hiccups this past week, the argument will grow for requiring stablecoin issuers to hold banking licenses with access to the Fed's discount window rather than storing their reserves at third-party traditional banks. This is what Wyoming-based Custodia Bank applied to do, only to be rejected by the Fed last month in what seems like an especially boneheaded response. Circle 2 has long expressed a goal to become a bank. If this model is endorsed, how will the traditional banks respond? They're not going to want these new crypto players poaching their depositors, a super cheap source of financing whose departure could provoke an even bigger banking crisis. Might governments revert to direct control via central bank digital currency? With CBDCs, it's believed that the central banks can apply targeted differentiated interest rates, including negative interest rates, to incentivize people to continue storing their savings with higher paying traditional banks. Complicating things for governments, those same people could just exit their national currency altogether and put their savings in cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. As the struggle to control the digitization of fiat money progresses, the OG digital currency will stand as a hard money alternative. Does that mean Bitcoin becomes a real competitor to sovereign currencies for payments? Not necessarily, when it's possible that developing nations facing monetary outflows amid the, this uncertainty will follow El Salvador's lead and declare Bitcoin legal tender, the use of existing national currencies will likely remain entrenched in larger economies. Technologically, Bitcoin still has to prove itself as a payment mechanism. Still, Bitcoin's mere presence as a competitor could pressure governments to change things up, especially as different economies such as China's sees a competitive advantage in monetary digitization. The countervailing force in all of this is the public perception of crypto technology, which right now is deep in negative territory following the blowups of last year. Those events left millions of retail investors with losses and stoked the impression of a community dominated by scammers and selfish bros obsessed with gaudy trappings of wealth. At its core, money is a confidence game, a matter of faith and trust among the population that uses it. It's likely confidence in governments and their banking partners will wane in the aftermath of this banking crisis, but crypto is for now dealing with an even bigger mistrust problem. As this battle to redefine money unfolds, it's incumbent on members of the crypto community to engage in behavior that breeds confidence. If they can achieve that, the future is theirs. So really interesting piece. Um, kind of agree with most of it. Uh, you know, I think uh, Bitcoin clearly uh, is the foundation and uh, more and more people are beginning to understand that. Um, stable coins are a little dicey, but um, there's a use case for those and especially in countries, uh, people that live under authoritarian regimes that want to escape their local currency, uh, want dollars, but uh, can't get them. This is an easy way for them to do that. So, um, you know, there's there's definitely a market and a use case for that, and uh, you know, we'll uh, we'll see as this crisis continues to unfold. Now, I don't normally like Peter Schiff because he's a super anti-Bitcoin guy, but he's a he's a pretty smart economist, and and uh, you know, he's a gold bug, of course. But uh, thought this was kind of an interesting piece uh, worth worth uh, going through. 
Uh, this uh, is from Bitcoin.com. This was just updated today, and it's entitled Economist Peter Schiff Expects Worse Financial Crisis Than 2008. says, quote, future rate hikes are now pointless. Economist and gold bug Peter Schiff shared his outlook for the U.S. economy in a series of tweets this week. He explained that when the government imposed lots of new banking regulations after the 2008 financial crisis, <clears throat> we were assured that what is happening right now would never happen again. However, he argued one good reason we had the 2008 financial crisis was too much government regulation. That's why this crisis will be worse. This time it's different. When the financial when the 2008 financial crisis started, the dollar rose and gold fell. This time it's the reverse. That's because investors are realizing the high inflation that should have hit 10 years ago will hit even harder now, the economist opined. The Fed caused the financial crisis of 2008 and 2023, Schiff asserted, claiming that he forecasted both because he understood the consequences of the Fed's policy mistakes. He added that he started predicting the current financial crisis back in 2009, but at the time, he didn't know how long it would take for it to hit. Schiff further explained that the Fed's quantitative easing is back. Last week, the Fed's balance sheet swelled by $300 billion, wiping out four months of QT, quantitative tightening, in one week. By the end of the month, the balance sheet could reach a new high. Rates hike, rate hikes don't matter. Inflation is headed much higher, thanks to bank bailouts, he detailed. His comment followed the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government unveiling measures to bail out Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank last Sunday. <clears throat> the Economist continued, The Fed was fighting a two-pronged war against inflation, rate hikes and QT. The Fed has now reversed fire and is doing aggressive QE. If QT was designed to lower inflation, QE will raise it. Future rate hikes are now pointless, as any effect will be more than offset by QE. And then he finishes up here, as I warned for years, the only way the Fed can come close to achieving its 2% inflation target is to allow a worse financial crisis than 2008 to run its natural course with no bailouts for banks or their customers, he conveyed. Referencing recent bailouts of major banks, he concluded the Fed chose bailouts and surrendered the inflation fight. And he's right. Okay, this next article is kind of interesting. This is going around on Bitcoin Twitter. Uh, some people were saying this guy was doing this for followers. Um, other people were saying like he actually believes this is a possibility. So it's this guy, Balaji Srinivasan, says, hyperinflation happening now makes million-dollar bets on Bitcoin price exceeding $1 million in 90 days. Venture capitalist Balaji Srinivasan believes that hyperinflation is happening now. Srinivasan is an angel investor, tech founder, and a Wall Street Journal bestselling author. He formerly served as the chief technology officer of crypto exchange Coinbase and was a general partner at venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. Commenting on a tweet made by former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey on October 2021 stating that hyperinflation will happen soon and will change everything, Srinivasan tweeted Friday, Jack is right. He emphasized hyperinflation is happening now. The angel investor referenced recent government and Federal Reserve bailouts of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. The Treasury Department said last Sunday that it will make available up to $25 billion as a backstop for its new bank term funding program. He further pointed out that the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis President Neil Kashkari previously said there is an infinite amount of cash at the Federal Reserve. 
Srinivasan explained in December last year that Bitcoin is a hedge against hyperinflation, monetary debasement, bank freezes, and wealth seizure. All true. He added, it's already proven itself in that role in places like Venezuela, Lebanon, Nigeria. In comparison, he explained that the largest cryptocurrency may eventually have a gold-like role as a hedge against standard inflation, but stressed that it takes decades to show. Believing that hyperinflation is already here, Srinivasan also urged investors to buy Bitcoin. In his tweet Friday, the venture capitalist wrote, buy Bitcoin and get your coins off exchanges. In addition, Srinivasan took a bet initiated by James Metlock, who announced on Twitter Thursday, I'll bet anyone a million dollars that the U.S. does not enter hyperinflation. The former Coinbase CTO responded, <clears throat> I'll take that bet. You buy one BTC, I will send a million USD. This is 40 to 1 odds as one BTC is worth 26K. The term is 90 days. All we need is a mutually agreed custodian who will still be there to settle this in the event of a digital dollar devaluation. In a follow-up tweet, Srinivasan detailed, I'm moving $2 million into USDC for the bet. I will do it with Medlock and one other person sufficient to prove the point. Everyone else should just go buy Bitcoin. It will be much cheaper for you than locking up one for 90 days. Several people have offered to help Medlock put up the one Bitcoin for the bet. Medlock subsequently tweeted, Balaji's are you ready to do this? Srinivasan re responded, yes, just moving money for the bet. We can do it via smart contract, but for simplicity, old-fashioned escrow may work. Srinivasan replied, the escrow person would need one BTC address and one ETH address for the USDC. The assets would sit on chain for 90 days. He clarified, if Bitcoin less than a million in 90 days after escrow, then you win and I get both the one Bitcoin and the one million USDC. If BTC is over one million USD in 90 days after escrow, then I win and I get both the one BTC and the now worthless one million USDC. <laughs> Medlock replied, sir, I believe we have ourselves a deal. The CEO of crypto exchange Binance, CZ, joined the conversation offering to be the escrow for the bet. At the time of writing, Bitcoin is trading at 27208 So anyway, I just thought that was kind of interesting. There was a lot of chatter back and forth on that on uh, Bitcoin Twitter. Okay, the next article here is from Bitcoin Magazine, uh, kind of an interesting one. This was posted on March 16th, entitled Fidelity Investments has opened Bitcoin trading to the public. Customers of Fidelity Investments can now buy Bitcoin through Fidelity Digital Assets. The Fidelity crypto platform first opened to a wait list in November 2022 is now available to the public as of yesterday. Customers are able to buy and sell Bitcoin, although they will not be able to transfer it to a self-custody wallet where the user controls the private keys. That's a problem. Uh, during the launch of the waitlist, there was mention of this ability to come later, but no detail or roadmap that has been provided beyond that. So uh, anyway, obviously you want to buy it and put it into self-custody, so it's better to work with somebody that offers that, like... Unchained Capital or Swamp Bitcoin or uh, Strike, um, places like that that are Bitcoin only. When trading, customers will not be charged a fee, but a 1% spread, which Fidelity is defined as the difference between the price at which you buy or sell crypto in your Fidelity crypto account and the price at which Fidelity Digital Assets fills your order. This spread will be visible in the client execution price. 
Trading will only be available to U.S. citizens over age of 18 in eligible states. Fidelity's foray into cryptocurrency has not been without criticism, with a group of senators stating in a letter to the financial firm, Fidelity Investments has opted to expand beyond traditional finance and delve into the highly unstable and increasingly risky digital asset market. But that seemingly hasn't stopped Fidelity. While their introduction of the service to the public may be welcomed, it is specifically during moments like the current banking crisis that extra emphasis should be placed upon self-custody. Trust in institutions that are exceptionally large, similar to Fidelity, is what led to the fiasco seen over the last week. So while Fidelity is often regarded as a highly trusted institution, it should still be noted that trusted third parties are security holes and that the only true way to sovereignly use Bitcoin is through holding of one's own private keys, underscore exclamation point. And last but not least, uh, we have another article here from Bitcoin Magazine. This was posted also on March 16th, entitled, As the U.S. Sees Its Second Biggest Banking Collapse Ever, Bitcoin is Just Becoming Stronger. And this is actually an opinion piece by Carlos Cardenas, an institutional account manager who has worked at legacy banks and cryptocurrency exchanges. Author Nassim Talib published an interview titled Bitcoin is the Detector of Imbeciles, <laughs> in which he rearticulated his arguments that Bitcoin cannot play the role of a currency or a store of value and suggests that it will, quote, collapse. But is this really true? Sure, Bitcoin has suffered catastrophic drops in its value over the past 10 years, including as much as 58% last year. But overall, it had an average annual return of 1,576% between 2010 and 2021. Through Bitcoin's evolution, we have seen a thriving global network of miners arise and over 1 million active addresses. Thanks to Bitcoin, we now see an emerging crypto economy inclusive of other cryptocurrencies and digital assets, utility tokens, and NFTs worth more than $1 trillion. Through all of the innovation and even the negative events associated with Bitcoin, bans, confiscations, frauds, scams, etc., Bitcoin and its user base have adopted, adapted and prevailed. Meanwhile, the recent collapses of financial institutions like SVB, Silvergate Bank, and Signature Bank have once again highlighted the fragility of the legacy financial system. We have witnessed the systematic destruction of wealth through debasement and inflation supported by the traditional financial system, bad actors and poor policymaking for as long as we have been alive. If you remember 2008, 1999, or 1987, or have been paying attention today, you've been aware of all these issues for a while, yet you knew there was no real alternative until Satoshi Nakamoto created Bitcoin. The power of Bitcoin is not its price, though believe me, I would have loved to have bought some back in 2011. The power of Bitcoin is the freedom to transact in a convoluted world. Its programmatic money supply and its democratized form for adoption with relatively low barriers to entry. You can participate in the network by running a node, mining, or simply buying and selling it. Today, thanks to ordinal theory, you can now inscribe digital files on a Satoshi and remain free of censorship achieve immutability, and enjoy a truly decentralized file storage system. This unlocks a number of opportunities for communications, artists, and collectors, and it paves the way to better Bitcoin infrastructure. This is what anti-fragility is, adaptability, resiliency, and evolution in a system subject to shocks. Fourteen years ago, the Bitcoin Genesis block shared a message. The Times 
3 January 2009, Chancellor on the brink of the second bailout for banks. Today, we are facing fallout from the second largest banking collapse in U.S. history. This teaches me that while we have not learned our lessons, we still have time for present and future generations to embrace Bitcoin technology and create a sounder and more efficient financial system. Despite recent financial turmoil, Bitcoin remains unscathed and has proven its utility in being more than any other investment in a portfolio, but a truly modern version of the financial system. So again, really nice piece. Couldn't agree more. Last, I just want to mention uh, this week's uh, Substack post, which is my monthly portfolio update. I uh, also put some uh, info in there around the macro environment. So uh, I'll include a link in the show notes if you want to check it out. We'll go over it here. And uh, that's it for this week. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please like and leave a comment. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. You can also follow my Substack at bitcoinfortress.substack.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Nick Reichert. Also, don't forget, if you do listen on Fountain, you can earn sats. I think it's up to 60 a day or something uh, listening to your favorite podcast, which I've been doing. Really enjoy it. And if you also uh, like my podcast there, you can support the show and send me a few sats. Uh, And I will talk to you all next week. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.